Well, you won't be surprised to know, as I point out in the book in the many later chapters, conservatives, did the powerful, the propertied, the privileged and the pious did everything they could through the course of 200 years to suppress the memory and legacy of Thomas Paine. Everything. But fortunately, Paine had basically turned Americans into radicals, and in every generation, the radical movement of the day would reach back to the revolution and rediscover Thomas Paine. That was true for free thinkers and abolitionists and suffragists and labor unionists and populists and progressives and socialists and anarchists and communists. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper, welcoming back champion guest Professor Harvey Kay, who is uh, Emeritus Professor of Democracy at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, if I'm not mistaken. You're not mistaken. I'm going to get that right one of these days. Um, An author of the book, uh, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. And I hope I'm getting that one right, too. Yes. Um, Great. Yeah. So we we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, Thomas Paine in this, uh, this, this, you know, your, your classic book, which is a number of years old, but, you know, it's still a great kind of uh, introduction to the the history and, uh, you know, the life of Tom Paine. And, um, you know, just to kind of dip our toes into the, the waters of pain, as you might, uh, you, you, you might say, and I was, I was pleased to learn that his, his, he was born Thomas Paine, P-I-A-N. P-A-I-N. Yeah. Like a, like a professional wrestler. Um, I enjoyed that very much, but so just give us a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of his, a historical sketch. Who was this guy? Um, and, and what was his deal, you know, in the main kind of period of his life? Okay. Well, let's put it this way. Whenever I've written about pain, I've tried to figure out what title would I accord him regarding his career? And I think the best way to put it, since I'm most interested in, in American readers is, is a radical patriot and pamphleteer. Okay, having said that, I'll also say he was the greatest radical of a decidedly radical age. And I want to go one step further before I talk biographically and tell you that I really come to believe the best way to describe it is that in his pamphlet, Common Sense, which truly converts or transforms or turns the American colonial rebellion into a revolutionary war for independence and the making of a democratic republic. He has a line, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And I've, I've always loved that line, but more and more I, I've come to appreciate that line as the, the, the line or the literary moment where, where the modern world truly begins. That for better or worse, what the modern world is about, or at least what Americans are about, is this sense, again, rightly or wrongly, that we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And, and I'll just say that it's one of those lines that's both absolutely true and absolutely untrue. Now, it's absolutely, it's absolutely untrue because if we began the world over again, we would at least have the memories of that which we overcame. Okay, 
But even, but on the other hand, it's absolutely true because of its power in the fact that if you think about the great thinkers of the modern world, it's folks who have recognized that the modern world is made by humanity, that it's not divinely ordained or naturally given, however much a belief in God may shape our thoughts, however much nature will determine so much of our lives. The fact that the political, economic, and social order is socially constructed. That doesn't make it readily malleable, but, it te- but the idea that Payne is saying is that you do not have to accept the way the world is. We do have it in our power to be in the world over again. And by the way, as your listeners may remember, my other figure from American history, who I, amongst many probably, who I admire a lot, is Franklin Roosevelt. And it was Roosevelt who, in the campaign of 32, said um, economic laws are not, are not made by nature. They're made by humans. Okay, that, it's that kind of thing. So, but I, when I think about it, it's pain that begins it. Now, who, who was this guy? Well, he was the son of an English artisan. He was born in 1737 in Thetford, England, which is the, in the Norfolk, Norfolk region of, of England. His uh, father was a Quaker. His mother was an Anglican which made for a very, very stressful kind of relationship, I assume. Um, but it, it provided a sort of upbringing for pain that served him well, even if it made him uncomfortable as he grew up. Um, his parents were of limited means. They weren't poor, but they were of limited means. And it was an aunt of the family who afforded them enough money to send pain to the local grammar school, as it was called, until the age of 13. But the money ran out, and Payne was pulled out, not pulled, but removed from school, and made an apprentice to his father. His father was a corset maker, otherwise known as a stay maker. And this is what Payne trained in for several years. Um, by most accounts, and, his, and, and the fact that he didn't like to, to stick with it too long, he didn't really like it, okay? It was a very, very demanding and challenging kind of apprenticeship. But it also, again, served him very well, um, in part because when he decided to run away from home, which by that time he was already in his very late teens, he went down to the coast to become a privateer. And a privateer is basically crown-licensed piracy. That is, the ship sailed under the English flag, and they would attack enemy shipping, and they would hopefully defeat the enemy, take possession of the ship and its cargo, and return to an English port where they would divide between crown, captain, and crew. And he spent a year at sea on the privateer. And by the way, being on a privateer, he learned how to fight, probably learned how to curse even more effectively than he did before. He learned about the diversity, the diversity that prevailed in the greater British world, because more than likely the members of the crew were from not only sort of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, but also from the Caribbean and other ports. But the other thing is, is that because he had been a staymaker, he probably became a valuable member of the crew as someone who could repair the sails. He spent a year at sea. And then pretty much had enough of it, felt pretty lucky probably that he hadn't lost an arm or died in the process. He he returns to England with money in his pocket and heads to London 
not with the idea of setting himself up in a career, but he was a voracious, well, artisans were autodidacts. They couldn't attend university. They could, their schools were limited. But so they created their own schools and pubs, you know, taverns and coffee shops. And Payne loved science and technology and was very interested in, you know, the general idea of natural philosophy. And so he spent a year in London as a sort of, you know, semi-formal student, attending lectures, reading books, buying certain kinds of instruments to educate himself. And it was a powerful year. I mean, London was the greatest city in the world. Several hundred thousand people lived there. The artisan community was fascinating, intellectually involved and engaged. And, and it, so, but at the end of the year, when he was out of money, he had to resort to the craft that he had learned. He was not going to go back to sea. He returns to stay making outside of London. He falls in love with a young woman and they marry and they have, they're about to have a child and both mother and child died in childbirth, which was obviously devastating, obviously devastating. But like most 18th century men, he didn't talk very much about that experience. But what he did is he went home to his parents and began to study for the excise officer's exam because her father had been an excise officer. And he saw that as an alternative and as a way of perhaps getting steady, a steady income, however limited the income would be. And he passes and he becomes an excise officer. Now, I'll make it short in the sense that he serves two stints as an excise officer. They were punctuated by his having been, as the English say, sacked or fired <laughs> when he was accused of stamping, which meant that, that basically you, you stamped the cargo of a ship that came in without actually inspecting it. And he was sacked. And later, he's reinstated. It takes a couple of years, a few years to be reinstated, but he petitions and pursues this, which also provides, provides evidence of a theory that another historian offered, that maybe he wasn't guilty of it, that yeah. maybe he was the fall guy for his own supervisor. It seems this is the beginning of him being slandered by, by his enemies and by people who are perhaps uh, have their interests uh, vested against his more egalitarian spirit. Right. And it also taught him not to trust people who, who, who preside, live, order him about. OK, so. Um, so anyhow, he he spends a few years literally tr living. What's the old expression? Hand to mouth kind of thing. He works as a teacher for middle class people's kids. He works sometimes probably throws his hand in as a stay maker for somebody who might have had business that needed doing. He actually works for a while on Sundays as a preacher, but he didn't actually get paid. What preaching on Sunday would have done was it would have given him food, would have fed him. OK, but it also would have given him another opportunity to sort of try his hand at words. He loved poetry as a student when he was young, loved Shakespeare and Milton um, so this gave him a chance to try that out. And by the way, he's one of those English. The English have a real affection for poetry that I don't think Americans share. Um, young, I've, anyone who I've met in England who had been in school maybe prior to the, to the current moment just seemed to have an incredible ability to quote poetry to me. And I think that would have been pain pretty much. So anyhow, he ends up reinstated and is serving on the south coast of England as a as a, an excise officer. Now, by the way, an ex, being an excise officer meant you not only inspected cargo, you had to patrol the coast on horseback um, because small villages along the coast would often 
live off of shipwrecks. <laughs> and if they couldn't, yep. and if the shipwrecks weren't numerous, they might actually force them in some way. Okay. And the idea for the excise officer was basically to make sure that this wasn't a regular practice. Okay. So it was dangerous. You can imagine villagers in certain places despising the excise officer who's coming past, you know, to make sure that they're not breaking the law. Okay. And scavenging what should become, you know, uh, subject to taxes. So. Payne is in Ra, not, yeah, it's in, Ra, not Ra, Lewis, L-E-W-E-S. He lives in Lewis, and he's living in a, in a home with a tobacconist who was a prominent member of the community, and he introduces Payne to the community, and Payne himself becomes a sort of active member of the community. And it's, what's interesting in Lewis is the fact that he becomes a part of this group called the Headstrong Company that meets at least once, possibly twice a week, at the White Hart Tavern. Um, where they ate and they drank and they debated the politics of the day. Now, if you visit England and go to Lewis, to the White Hart Tavern now, you will see outside a plaque by the front door that says, you know, that here Thomas Paine learned about politics and began to develop his ideas about the American Revolution. Well, they actually say even more than that, like as if he was already primed to be the Thomas <laughs> Well, I, just as a sidebar, maybe this will entertain people. When I finally had a chance to go to Lewis, my wife and I and our daughters were, were in England, and um, we went to Lewis and got to the tavern, and I walked into the tavern, and there was a poster on the wall in the very front entranceway. And it said, I, I swear to you, I could even sh I could show you guys that everyone else wouldn't see it. A poster, Harvey's Tom Payne. <laughs> and, I saw, and I thought my wife had arranged something. This was like a setup. <laughs> I went to the barkeep and I said, what's this Harvey's Tom Payne? He goes, oh, you haven't been down to the end of the high street. It's the brewery at the end of the high street. It's not really nice, big brewery, Harvey's. And... Um, Oh, there it is. There's the picture of Harvey's Tom Paine. I love it. Yeah. And nice. every, Ju every July, in honor of Thomas Paine and the American Revolution, they brew Tom Paine's ale or Tom Paine's beer. So we, you know, we ate there. And you got to appreciate, I mean, just, just for a moment, I got to appreciate that being that, that we whooped their ass and they're celebrating that, that whooping. Right. And one of, yeah, one no, of exactly. the, right. That's it. You got to give them credit for that. That's, that's some self-deprecating humility there. That's, I appreciate that. I could show you other trinkets from Lewis, but I don't want to waste your time and, and everyone else will be just jealous that they can see what you can. <laughs> so, okay. So Payne is there. Payne becomes a pretty well-respected member of the Headstrand Company because they love his way with words, his ability to write rhymes, his ability to speak politically. And we know this to be true because the Headstrong Company kept a book. And the book at the end of the night would be handed to that person the crew felt had done the best job of rhyming and debating and all that. And his name appears frequently. I've not seen the book, but this is I've, I've heard people tell me this. OK, so. The problem is that the other, the other excise officers all shared Payne's concern, as I, something I kind of expressed to you, that it was dangerous work, it was not well paid, and it actually was the kind of career that was subject to corruption. So they, they, had, they had a gathering, at least the, the officers not too far away, 
uh, on the coast, and they elected Payne to be their representative. It's a kind of like early rendition of being their labor l- spokesperson, leader, and, and lobbyist. And they commission him to go to London to lobby the excise, off- the excise commission and parliament to secure a, a raise in the wages, a rise in the wages of the excise officers. But I can tell you, that's an illegal thing, okay? The, the word combination was used, that is, which was an illegal act, that is, for people, to, for workers to come together to make demands of, of that sort. Not to mention, he abandoned his post. Presumably, his colleagues and comrades covered for him, but he had abandoned his post. And he spent months up in London. The good thing about spending in London, besides the fact he would be sacked again, is that he made really extraordinary contacts. We think he may already have known Franklin from an earlier time in London, but in any case, he comes to know Franklin and other f- prominent figures. Franklin lived in England as, as often as he lived probably in Philadelphia. And Franklin, Franklin, uh, when Payne informs him that he's been fired or sacked again, informs him, not informs him, encourages him to go to America. Now, we know that, we know that Franklin was recruiting people for, for the rebellion. Especially if they had military experience. Now, keep in mind, Sa- Payne, savvy guy, savvy guy, Big Ben. Yes, right. And Payne, of course, did have military experience, but there's nothing to indicate that he imagined Payne, given he was already like 37, 38 years old, and had no experience as an officer that might have been helpful. That in fact, Franklin just liked him and liked what he had to say and gave him a letter of introduction to go to Philadelphia, where you guys are. In fact, to his, to his son-in-law, right? So he, he applies a little pressure, puts some pressure on the son-in-law? Yeah. Yes, to his son-in-law. <laughs> By the way, Franklin, Franklin and his son split. Franklin's son was the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, and, re- and remained a Tory. Well, you, you don't often hear royal and New Jersey in the same sentence. But that's, 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 <laughs> that's, what, that's what history will do for you. I will tell you, that I am a Jersey boy, so watch it. <laughs> oh, but I didn't think you were a royal. I thought you were an anti-royal. Come on now. <laughs> this this is Benjamin Franklin, yeah, by the way, Benjamin right? Franklin, right, not Franklin Roosevelt. But Come on, right, you were, you were yeah. dancing on uh, Philip's uh, grave, weren't you there the other day? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long conversation. My wife, you know, is is originally British, and uh, it's a tough conversation. Yeah. And though very so much you know, on the left, uh, very much on the left, still has a lingering sort of. It's mostly hard, because you know, of the fact that Philip had served in the, in the war. I mean that that was important. Okay, um, and my father in law had was a, a not a, was a in the Royal Navy during World War II. So you can see that. Sure, sure, of course, the affinity. Yeah. So um, to come back to Payne, so Payne sails for Philadelphia in the autumn of 1774. America's already in rebellion, already in rebellion. He's he's already he's already despises everything England has been is about in this this sense. England was ruled by a king, you know, basically dominated by aristocrats. Um, and it was, look, I mean, it was terribly inegalitarian. It was a land of terrible injustices in the 18th century. I mean, I'll tell people that basically if you pickpo- were caught pickpocketing, you could be literally executed or sent off to Australia to the prison um, colony. I mean, it was, it was a tough place. Only one of every 20 Englishmen, at best two in certain places, probably could vote because to vote you had to have a certain amount of property or pay a certain amount in taxes. 
Um, only Anglicans were, were truly first level subjects. Everyone else was sort of tolerated. That's actually the term they used. Um, so, so he knew about the corruption. He knew about the injustices. He knew about the inequalities firsthand. Um, so arriving in America is a truly liberating experience for him. He came off the ship terribly ill, but recovered in Philadelphia in, in, a, in a few weeks. And when he goes out and about, and then Philadelphia, to those of you who are living in Philadelphia today, it's a major city, but it was a city of 30,000 people, one square mile. And yet in this one square mile, there were taverns, coffee shops, bookstores. I mean, it was, a, it was a, unofficially the capital of Britain's North American colonies. Okay. And Payne was absolutely astounded. I mean, I think he had, you know, to be crude about it, he probably imagined he had died and died and gone to heaven. I mean, for a start, for a start, he could not believe the diversity of Philadelphia. Okay. He was, by the way, shocked by the slave market in Philadelphia. And he actually, one of his earliest pieces is a, is a, is a call to end African slavery in America. And what makes it particularly interesting is that he doesn't just want to abolish slavery. He wants Americans to feel a responsibility to their fellow American, black Americans, and educate them and provide them with land. Though, in fact, he, he suggested the land might be out on the frontier to protect whites from, from Native Americans. But nevertheless, he didn't see slaves as, as warranting being placed on ships and sending them back to Africa, as too many an American might have thought. Well, the other thing is, is this. Philadelphia was incredibly diverse ethnically and religiously. I mean, it had you, you got to imagine, you had not only the Quakers, who were the elite of Philadelphia, you had Anglicans, you had Catholics, you had a sizable Jewish population, you had Moravians and Lutherans. A lot of Philadelphians were German speakers, in fact. I mean, it was incredible. You had French. Right. Common sense gets translated into German, right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. So I know I'm, dra I'm dragging this out maybe a bit much to give you the biography, but it is the case that he's so astounded that he literally falls in love with America. He recognizes the contradictions, but he, he sees in America, and I haven't even gotten to the big thing, sees in America incredible, call it world historic possibilities. But what really makes him realize the world historic possibilities is this. Americans have already staged a rebellion. Edmund Burke actually talked about it as if America had already staged a revolution. They just didn't know it. And Parliament should watch itself because if they pushed the Americans any further, the Americans might realize they had staged a revolution. Now, what did that mean? It meant, first of all, that they had literally risen up in towns and town and country from basically New England in Massachusetts all the way down to the into the southern colonies and thrown out the British officials. OK, who are probably still living among them, but they would no longer obey them. And they set up their own committees. By the way, it was an anarchist dream. <laughs> they had set up committees to govern themselves. Yeah. Now, I, I hope we get to the influence of Tom Paine and we get to how the anarchists loved him in, in, in the 1880s and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the, the various other. Yeah, I'm um, going to warn you at the rate I'm going, this will become a two episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we <laughs> We, we can make some jumps. We can make some jumps, but maybe well, so I anyhow, keep... so he's astounded. Yeah. What he does, realizing this, is he realizes something incredible that that literally Americans have the opportunity to create an utterly new history by creating a new nation. And so he 
to make the long story short at this point, he commits himself to writing a pamphlet that will appear titled Common Sense. It'll appear in January of 76. And in this pamphlet, Payne will show that, basically he'll reveal the degree to which he believes Americans, are, not Americans, humanity is fundamentally sociable and instinctively democratic. And he will go on to literally lambaste British government and the British constitution and kings. I mean, the British thought they were like, the, you know, the exception to the world, that they had rights that no one else did. And Payne realized that that was terribly, a terrible hyping of reality, or the lie, of, false news, we'll call it, okay, about what Britain was. <laughs> and what he does, what he does is he reveals to Americans not only how absurd it is to have kings, and not only how absurd it is to believe that Britain is their parent country, keep in mind, they're, 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 they're English, they're Welsh, they're Scottish, they're French, and, you know, I've laid, named all these things. And he goes one step further, and he says, Britain's not the parent country, and the empire doesn't protect you. Kings, empires, they all bring war to your lives. You know. And by the way, don't forget, the so-called French and Indian Wars, or Seven Years' War, had ended only you know, uh, eight years, what, seven years before, in 17, well, not quite, maybe 10 years before, it's in 1763. Americans understood what he was talking about. And then he, what he does is, in this pamphlet, he holds up a mirror to Americans, I, I, this is the best metaphor I can use, holds up a mirror to Americans to say, look, you're not even British. You are American, and you're not fighting for British rights. You're fighting for human rights. Yeah. See, see Harvey, this is where I, I, I think there's so many interesting things about what you might call, you know, anachronistically, the, the dialectical nature of uh, what what Paine did and, and what he reveals, I think, uh, both in terms of like the Gramscian uh, relationship between ideas and action, right? Uh, but but also but also the fact that it, it took an immigrant to teach Americans what Americans truly who they truly were, and and, and th there's this dynamic between action and speech between. Uh, I mean, I mean, he exemplifies, he, he is politically active, uh, and then, and then he's, he's drawing upon what he sees in the contingent material, uh, environment he's in that gives him the ideas that then reminds people of who they might already be. And so there's something I, I see throughout this because it goes from Payne's life all the way through, uh, to, to really to, to Reagan, you start in the intro with, with that's Reagan. The that's the book you're right. referring to, just so everyone understands. So, oh, sorry. Yes. And, and, and right. Uh, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. The, the, the book really showed me an interesting way that your understanding of Paine's spirit being kind of something that has this lineage is in part because of that dialectical process between ideas and political moments and actions and leadership um, that he himself represented as well, right? Yeah, I mean, to use the Gramscian term, he was an organic intellectual of the first order. He is the exemplary organic intellectual uh, who, who is, you know, I mean, he's a working man. He's an artisan with a bit of education, an autodidact. I mean, the most powerful force in American politics of those days are the folks who, not, who aren't even able quite often to participate directly in politics. And those are farmers and artisans. And he's speaking to them. Well, Look, I mean, the pamphlet appears, I think they published one thousand, the first printing was a thousand copies. And, and immediately it sold out. And there was a second edition 
that pain for pain rejected because the the printer had allowed somebody to to include a an attack on him in the copy. So he issues a third edition himself with another printer. This between the two of them, this now takes off, and it's presumed both by the estimates and Payne's own later re- reference that perhaps 120,000 copies go into distribution. By the way, the American colonies had a total population of 3 million in 1776. Three, 500,000 of the 3 million were African-American. 120,000 copies go into distribution, and that does not include every single newspaper from Boston to Charleston printed selections. Yeah. selections. And by the way, if anyone ever saw a movie that I hate to recommend because I despise the lead actor, Mel Gibson, who's an anti-Semite character, but in that film, The Patriot, where he's a southern planter, which is all bullshit, by the way, regarding this guy who supposedly is a rebel. Nevertheless, there's a moment in the film where Heath Ledger, the young, the young man, is sitting at home waiting for his father, Mel Gibson, to arrive because he needs to open the mail so that Heath Ledger can get the love letter from his girlfriend who's in the capital city. Anyhow, and the newspaper opens up, Mel Gibson sits back, and, and the, the camera pans in. Is that the expression used, pans in? Sure, yeah. To a column in the newspaper, which is entitled Common Sense. So ah, nice, Michael yeah. Mann, who I think produced the film, was, was doing his history right, okay? All these newspapers published it. So everyone was reading it, by the way, this was a pamphlet that people didn't just read. They, they stood up in taverns Quoted and, it, right? and read it aloud. Yeah, yeah. There's this great moment that I ran across it. I guess it was in one of the biographies of Adams. Adams is at the barber in Philadelphia. And let's not forget, barbers didn't use scissors, especially if you didn't have much hair, as, as, as Adams didn't have. But they used a, a blade, right, to shave you. That's what barbers really were for. Mm-hmm. And Here's the barber, presumably his blade is to Adam's neck, <laughs> saying to Adams, we're going to be reading, to- we're going to read aloud from Common Sense, or something like that. We're going to go to the tavern tonight. You should come along, that kind of thing. And Adams is probably wondering, because don't forget, Adams, <laughs> although a lawyer and, and something of a rebel, is nevertheless an elite figure. So, And by the way, Adams would come to despise Thomas Paine, absolutely despise Thomas Paine, because... He blamed all of the revolutionary fervor, which was not what Adams ever wanted to see in the revolution. He blamed all of it on Thomas Paine. Okay, so <laughs> so he's ha- he's hated by the, the the elitists, right? But but also uh, beloved by the people because. In part, you know, his father, Thomas Paine's father, wouldn't let him learn Latin. And, and you, you know, you kind of write about how maybe his, his love of poetry combined with not going into to Latin perhaps led to his plainness uh, and his accessibility. Uh, his prose is great, but it's also very accessible. And he purposefully democratized, um, you know, this pamphlet so that, you know, the, the masses could could be uh, reached. And, and this was a, a powerful thing. So um, and it was fi- the pamphlet was filled with both humor and power. It was filled with his antipathy to Britain and his utter affection and aspirations for America. And it, and he, it connected. And by the way, in the course of the revolution, say 1776 to 1783, and I'm not the one who, who makes this claim it, it's previous historians and biographers and even some of my peers 
They estimate that perhaps 500,000 copies of Common Sense were distributed. But the most interesting line, which, not line, um, uh, analysis, was offered by, I think its name is John Furling, a really outstanding historian of the revolution, who said, we have to face the fact that the most important document in the revolution and, and read by Americans as the most important during the revolution was not the declaration, it was common sense. That's what they referred to when they thought of themselves as Americans, not the Declaration. Although, don't take anything away from the Declaration, but that, that's the case. But is the, is the claim, Harvey, that common sense was really the documents that shifted the purpose of the resistance to uh, actual independence and to taking advantage of this critique of, uh, you know, uh, of the rule that was, was had over them? And turning it into the basis for um, beginning the world anew again with self-governance and with universal rights and right is and so the so the declaration was influenced in that way perhaps yeah well the main yes oh absolutely and by and I'll refer to two things on that first of all Americans really did think of themselves as British subjects and and they were in rebellion because they were demanding the rights of British subjects as their you know, British cousins already had. And the argument by conservatives that it was all about taxation without representation is only partially true. More significant is it was legislation without representation. And and we shouldn't let the, the conservatives and right wingers get away with, with that. We should remind we should never again say taxation without representation. We should say legislation without representation. Now as far as the declaration is concerned, this is the this is another important part. Um, Pauline Murray, who had no affection um, for Thomas Paine ever and couldn't even figure out the, uh, the most obvious things staring her in the face about Paine and the Declaration. She was so eager to knock Jefferson. By the way, historians must work like mafias, okay? So there's like a New England mafia and a Virginia mafia. And I'm out here in Wisconsin, so I don't have any mafia. But um, the New Englanders, they all attribute the revolution they think the revolution already basically occurs by 1776, okay? And and even though she's not in Boston, she's at Brown, not Harvard, she really doesn't want to give Jefferson too much credit in her work. So she does this book on the Declaration several year, a number of years ago in which she says, you know, oh, communities were already determined to demand independence and they were sending their messages and blah, 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 blah. Well, all well and good. Well, then why not admit that it's Thomas Paine's common sense that inspires and encourages these people to send these messages to Jefferson? And by the way, Jefferson never really, you know, Jefferson was pretty tight lipped about his own life. And as you can imagine, <laughs> yeah, a few things to hide. Yeah. yeah right. Keep that under but the it's table. also yeah. the case. This is the interesting thing about and Jefferson and Paine never never had a falling out. They remained, they remained friends and spent a good deal of time together during the French Revolution, by the way, over in Paris. When Jefferson was asked, who was the greatest writer of the revolution? And, and most people, when they, when they were asked, who was the great writer of the period, they'll tell you Jefferson was the great American writer. But Jefferson himself said Thomas Paine, to his credit, you might say. Um, so anyhow, so common sense launches this revolution, but Paine himself is so committed. He's already like 38, you know, he's yeah, 38 years old. He enlists in a Philadelphia militia. 
and goes to, to with the militia to New York in the hopes of fighting the British. The mo- militia basically pulls back to Philadelphia. Payne goes on basically to Fort Lee, New Jersey, and becomes a right-hand man to Nathaniel Green, one of Washington's best generals. Washington is getting his ass kicked in New York City. Okay, the battles, and he retreats across the Hudson to Fort Lee. And there's what, you know, Payne's life is filled, make a great movie, but unfortunately no one could raise the money to make it happen. The moment where Washington meets Payne must have been extraordinary because Washington knew, he knew that the rebellion had turned into a revolution because of Thomas Payne, because he himself wrote to one of his close, you know, his one, a, a man I think who had been one of his adjutants, and said, in, back in February, I think it was, of 1776, this pamphlet, Common Sense, is working a wondrous change in the minds of men. Hmm. So Washington comes to see Payne as the source of the revolutionary idea. And Joseph Barlow, who was a chaplain and a, a diplomat during the revolutionary years, had this line, which is sometimes attributed wrongly to Adams, but the line is, Without the pen of pain, Washington's sword would have been wielded in vain. And Washington realized. <laughs> I mean, whatever Washington's ego was, he had he really did appreciate pain all the more because during the revolution, Payne wrote a series of crisis papers. Whenever the morale among the, 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 the you know the new American citizens and the army seemed to be flagging. He would write one of these pamphlets to try to inspire or sort of, if you like, incite all the more courage and hope. And for example, in one of the in one of the pamphlets, the first one, we all know the line. These are the times that try men's souls. That's pain. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. You're pulling my leg. <laughs> You're in Philadelphia, man. <laughs> but the interesting thing is along the way, he he. He actually writes 16 of them, but he only numbers 13 of them because he wants them to represent the 13 new states. The other three, he gives like additional like, a, a, like appendix kind of numbers. Well, here's the thing. This is really good. In one of them, Payne actually, talk about audacity. You got to love a guy like this. He says, he writes the pamphlet as a warning to the Brits that if you don't watch out, I'm coming back to Britain to start a revolution there, you know? This guy's got chutzpah, you know what yes, I'm saying? Yes, you got it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, it, I fell in love no with wonder, no, when I was 10 years old, but, you know, <laughs> it's still there 60 years later. He, he, well, what you're telling me is he's the he's he wrote the most powerful take that anyone has ever written. Um, I just did a quick back-of-the-envelope math there that, that if, if there are... Uh, 2.5 million colonists back in the, the population of the colonies, at least uh, back in them days, about 2.5 million, 500,000 copies. That'd be the equivalent of selling a book that 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 runs 66 million copies today. Um, I don't think about book- without Oprah's book club. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think even Oprah could do 66 million copies. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. But he, um, he, he was insta famous, if you will, after that. And then so, well, but, 
But um, yes, and a matter of fact, well, it was. We better, I, let, we better let Ryan. I, I'm going to let you ask me questions because I could really. No, go it's on just to... because because I can cut you off because I'm Greek and I can do that. But Ryan <laughs> will never talk if we don't give him a chance. He will just just sit there and let you and I talk the whole time. So we have to well, give him a chance. I wanted to, you know, we're we're being pretty uh, laudatory towards old Mr. Payne, the 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 Tom Payne from the, you know, the from Norfolk, um, but. Uh, I mean, can you speak a little bit more about how, you know, he, it's like he, he has this kind of romanticized, I think it's fair to say a view of, of the possibility of America, how, how he viewed like the issue of, you know, slavery in particular, you know, it's like, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird fit, you know, it's like, we're going to make history over again. And it's like, we're still, still dealing with the legacy of slavery here, you know, 260 years later, however long it is. Um, you know, and so like, how did he, how did he sort of like thread that needle, so to speak? Okay. Well, for a start, at least we're pretty sure we don't have his name on the document, but we're pretty sure that this article that I referred to earlier that I think appears in March of 75, um, titled agrarian, sorry, African slavery in America is his, um, there's a debate. Um, there are those who think it is and those who think it isn't. It, the, the writing doesn't quite sound like pain, but the spirit does, okay? Um, and what it is, is it's, as I said, a call for an end. He cannot believe that the liberty-loving, liberty-proclaiming American colonists can tolerate slavery in their social, in their societies. Pain, 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 by the way, is very interesting. The same kind of thing happens later when he goes back to Europe and is involved in the Fr- French Revolution, not by intention, but by just being there and his, the way they pull him into it. Is, and he ends up eventually, the last great pamphlet of the 1790s, and I'll show you what I mean, how they're connected. He can't believe Americans would even want to have slavery in their midst. He can't bear the sight of it, to know the immorality and, the, and how that immorality denies the very claims that Americans are making on history. Mm-hmm. Well, similarly, in the 1790s, Payne, having read a sermon by some English you know, uh, minister, I don't mean re- political minister, I mean uh, religious minister, right. who quotes, in quotes, Jesus, who says, you know, the poor will always be with us. And Payne utter- is outraged to think that people don't realize that it's civilization that creates poverty. The word capitalism hasn't quite developed. Though Payne and Adam Smith have had contact, okay? And both Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and Payne's Common Sense both appear in 1776. But he, but he actually says, I believe it's in the pamphlet, Gary Just, he cannot fathom how, how the rich can bear to live and witness poverty. How could you enjoy what you have if you see others without? Which is a, which is a deeply moral kind of observation, I think. And, I, and that's pretty much it. Now, for what it's worth, and this is important, in, when Payne is back in France and, and he's sustaining, I believe he was in contact with the then mayor of Philadelphia, whose name escapes me. And they're talking about the tr- whatever troubles are, 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 are taking place in the new nation. Payne actually refers to the need to send young, educated black men, free men, down south. And, I, and what he's implying is we need literally 
to mobilize the slaves. We, we need to create... Now, it would have been somewhat suicidal in some cases to have done that, not just as the organizer, but indeed as the slaves themselves, <laughs> yeah. as history would attest. But what Payne is getting at is it's not going to happen just because people are going to realize this is un-American, this slavery, based on the founding documents. But he's, it, it clearly is in his, is in his mind. And um, one can only wonder what the conversations between Jefferson and Payne were on the subject of slavery perhaps even with Sally Hemings herself in the room in Paris. Tell, tell us more, though. So, so I think this is a chapter of, of Paine's life that people maybe don't know so much. You know, they think, oh, Thomas Paine, Common Sense, American Revolution. He's, a, you know, the, the, the poster to end all posters. Um, um, you know, a book that people actually read. Incredible. Uh, yeah. But then he goes to, to France and he's like a, turbo radical in the United States, but he goes to France and he's like, Oh shit. <laughs> like he's like a little bit. Hold on. But tell us what, don't, tell, don't give it all away yet. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he, he, he's experiences a little bit of political kind of whiplash, right? Like what's the situation over there? Hold on. Hold on. First thing. Leading the witness, it. Ryan, leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. First thing to understand is when the revolution ends, Payne himself devotes himself, turns his attention to the thing that's always been his first interest, and that's science. And he, and he decides what America needs is an iron bridge. So he sets himself to designing an iron bridge with the idea that he will build it. How do you pronounce your river? The Schuylkill? That's right. Yeah. Well done. Right. To build this bridge across the Schuylkill River as a model to all Americans. As, because, look, bridges were often were made of wood. And American rivers froze before the age of global warming. Okay, And in, when the freezing occurred, the bridges would be wrecked in the course of the freezing and unfreezing. So Payne said what we need is, because otherwise you're going to have to travel by boat all the time from Maine to New York to, to South Carolina and Georgia. So what he thought of, we got to build a bridge. So he designed a bridge. He wanted to build it over the Schuylkill. And the idea was he was always worried. And this is the slavery question as well. He was always worried that the South and the North, that all of the colonies might literally, as a nation, disintegrate into separate nations, separate states. But if they could be unified physically, they could be held together. Commerce and friendship that kind of thing. The problem is that there were really no resources, money resources, to enable him to build the bridge. So Franklin suggested to him that he take his model and go to, go to London, London and Paris, to seek monies to build a, lar a larger model and eventually to secure endorsements to return to America and build the bridge. So he goes to England and He's going, literally spending a couple of years going back and forth, London to Paris. He actually does build a much larger model. It does get a lot of attention. But the thing is that Payne is himself known as common sense. He's known as this radical figure from America. The English themselves, and by the way, anyone who ever reads The Making of the English Working Class by E.P. Thompson will see the entire first very long chapter is all about Thomas Paine's influence his writings in England in the creation of, if you like, a, 
a, a movement for democracy, a, a labor movement, that kind of stuff. As Payne is going back and forth, London to Paris, the, the French Revolution explodes. And what's important to realize is many of those who explode are veterans of the French army and navy who helped America gain its independence. And by the way, as, as Alexei noted earlier, Payne's pamphlet was, Common Sense, was translated first into German because of all the German Lutherans in, in Philadelphia. But it was placed on ships and sent back to Hamburg. And intellectuals, enlightened intellectuals, they embraced this Thomas Paine and his arguments, okay? They had great hopes that America might be everything that Paine had hoped it would become. So Paine is going back and forth. The French Revolution explodes. And Edmund Burke writes Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is probably the founding document of conservative political thought, okay? Not reactionary, as some would, would uh, over in France would write, but decidedly conservative, and to our minds, perhaps reactionary, but truly the beginnings of conservative political thought. Now, Payne is disturbed by this. I mean, Burke was no friend, Burke was a friend of the rebellion, but not of the revolution in America. But in any case, Payne assumed he would be a friend of his own and they had some correspondence and, and so on. But Payne is outraged by Burke's argument that how dare the French overthrow the, you know, how dare the French try to turn the world upside down? How dare the French throw out tradition out the window, throw, any, throw hierarchy out the window? How can you sustain a reasonable social order without such things? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Well, Payne, he's, he's angry. There were others who wrote in response, like Mary Wollstonecraft, the feminist, among, uh, wrote a great, a great little work. But Payne writes, Rights of Man, which would eventually become a two pamphlet, actually two books, practically, um, in, uh, against Burke's arguments in defense of the revolution. By the way, he opens by saying the American Revolution has shown the possibilities Okay, he, he actually uses that image of how do you turn, how do you, tr how do you start the world over again? Where are you going to stand to do that? You can imagine postmodernists love that one. Okay, post, you know, where are you going to stand to make things happen? It's turtles all the way down or something like that. <laughs> but Payne says now we can stand on the American Revolution and the United States. That is the foundation. And he defends the French Revolution and its aspirations because he believes there will now be two republics in the Atlantic world. And in that way, the Atlantic world itself can be transformed, okay? That Britain, you can overthrow the British monarchy, okay? He even says in a footnote, well, if you put together the Americans and the French and maybe even the Dutch, you can literally enable the Spanish-American peoples to declare their independence and create republics. I mean, it's this vision of, of, if you like, of an Atlantic revolution. So he goes back to England, despite the fact that he's written this first part of, of Rights of Man. And he is, he is look, he, he has people following him all the time. You know, the crown is spying on his every movement. Don't forget, there were serious organizations created who were determined to secure 
the rights that Americans had been fighting for in England. Okay. And it got, gets to the point where basically they charge him with sedition. They're about to arrest him. And as the story goes, William Blake, the poet, hears of this and warns Payne. And Payne hightails it to the coast, gets on a boat, sails to, to Calais in France. And when he steps off, discovers he has been elected to the National Assembly. <laughs> now, please understand. It's quite a whirlwind. Uh, you know yeah. any French, okay, to speak. He really didn't know any French. But he, he, all he knows is that they love him. They are, they're, you know, they probably have him up in a chair carrying him around the, uh, the, the city of Calais. He, so he's elected as the representative from Calais to the assembly. Now, everything that he does in the assembly requires a translator for him. And as you probably know, the French Revolution comes to be a matter of two different parties. There are the Girondins and there are the Jacobins. And it's, the, look, the Girondins were, were a bit more moderate than the Jacobins, but they're re all revolutionaries. The theory is that the more Girondin, there were more Girondins and Jacobins who could speak English, and therefore Paine aligned himself with the Girondins. Though I think he might well have gone there, because one thing about Paine is he opposed capital punishment. He hated violence. His father's Quaker his father was a Quaker. He he believed you only you only pursue violent military action, violent action when you have no choice otherwise. When all history depends upon that moment. But he opposed capital punishment. So he's in the assembly, of course, one by one the Jacobins once they gain power are executing not just aristocrats but the Girondin as well. And then the Jacobins decide to declare, the, basically they're going to abolish the Catholic Church's place in France, and they establish, what's it called? The uh, Cult of uh, Spiritual... Of Reason, the Temple of Reason, the, there's a the name for this. They, basically they establish this quasi-atheistic church. I know it sounds you know, contradictory. Now, here's the thing about Paine. Paine wrote during the American Revolution in, and in, that, that the new nation would have freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, and they would guarantee it by separating church and state. And by the way, if the American Revolution did nothing but separate church and state, it would still warrant being called a revolution. Now, that's not invaluable during the revolution because down in Virginia, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists, they didn't even know if they should get involved in the revolution because they didn't want to, they didn't want to set up a, a new nation where the Anglican church was going to be the establishment church, as you know, Jefferson and the others had had belonged to them, to the church, even though they were all deists like Paine, meaning they believed in God, but they didn't believe in uh, established uh, uh, biblical scripture. So Paine is a deist and he is but he believes in God. He makes it very clear he believes in God and even in a even a life in the hereafter. Which, by the way, becomes rather comical many years later because we should take them seriously. But spiritualists do everything in their power to try to connect to Thomas Paine in the afterlife during the 19th century. <laughs> so to come back, so so Paine writes a pamphlet, The Age of Reason, which is a direct threat to the Jacobin worldview. And, for the, and because of his relationship to the Girondin, 
the Jacobins order his arrest and imprison him. He claimed he was an American and that the French should, had no right to imprison him, basically, or at least should let him go because of the relationship between the two countries. The French government called in Governor Morris, the American Minister of France Ambassador. <laughs> Governor Morris despised Thomas Paine for a whole yep. host of reasons. And Governor Morris said, well, he's not an American, he's English. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah. And he let Payne suffer. And by the way, there's a story that Payne would have been executed because he became ill in, while imprisoned. And he happened to be with, with, I think, two either Danes or Belgians in the, in the, in the, in the, in the quarters of the cell, we'll call it. Now, each of these rooms or cells had two doors, an inner door and an outer door. The inner door was probably like a, like a prison cell door. The outer door was more like just a wooden barrier. And apparently the executioner or his agents would go the night before the executions would go door to door and would mark the doors of those to be executed. And apparently he marked the door with an indication of Thomas Paine to be executed. However, the men in, in the cell in the course of the night persuaded the guards to open the outer door to let air in because Paine was so ill. So the next day when the executioner's men came by, they, they didn't see the markings on the outer door and Paine survived. Well, a new ambassador comes to France from the United States, James Monroe, who as a young man was enamored of Paine and his writings. He secures Paine's release. And Paine lives with, with Monroe and his wife in the, Amer in the ambassador's residence for like two years, um, which I'm sure they got kind of fed up with, but he did spend the two years there. So here's the point. You asked me about he was the whiplash. The problem was for Paine, you don't execute people who themselves had helped the American Revolution. So when the question came up as to what to do with the king and his family, Paine voted against. He voted in favor of finding the king and his family guilty of treason to the French Republic. But he voted no on execution. He actually argued in the assembly, I think it was still called the assembly, it might have had another name, that really what the French should do is send the king and his family to America to be re-educated. <laughs> well, by the way, so the Jacobins, they were outraged. How could the great revolutionary Thomas Paine dissent from the will of the, of the assembly? And, you know, that's, by the way, that's really what led to his arrest. And so he writes that family common sense that adds to their antipathy. But eventually he's released and he, he ends up publishing, he ends up publishing the document, I, the text I referred to earlier. I don't know if I mentioned the name, Agrarian Justice. Here's, in, in Agrarian Justice, Payne has come to realize that democracy demands more than political rights. You can't have democracy without economic rights. Jefferson realized that himself. He never put it in that way. Jefferson, in spite of Jefferson, I mean, Jefferson's the weirdest figure in American history, you might say. Okay, I mean, just extraordinary. When Jefferson wanted this agrarian yeoman's democracy, it's because he did not believe that if you didn't have, if you didn't have the means of production, basically, you couldn't be a citizen effectively. You needed to be educated. You needed to have a base, a foundation. Jefferson didn't trust 
urban workers at all because he knew that they depended on the market and their own skills. They didn't have property. He, he was wrong, absolutely wrong, Jefferson, utterly wrong-headed on the question. But it is the case that what Paine realized is that you can't have democracy if you only have political rights. You need economic rights as well. So he writes Agrarian Justice, and he proposes. This is the pioneering text of social democracy, or as some would like me to say it, but I hesitate to say it. It's like the pioneering document of democratic socialism. What Paine says is God created the earth for everyone to share. Therefore, anyone who has a monopoly of, the, of property, especially a monopoly of property in the land, owes everyone else a payment, a tax. Paine hesitated to say, let's take the land away from them. Though I read one really interesting article by a, by a political scientist that said, really, really, agrarian justice was a warning and a threat to landowners. You either pay these taxes or we're coming for you. Okay. But Payne put it as in this way. They must pay a tax. The tax should go into a fund, a national fund. Out of the national fund, there will be two kinds of payments. Payments to young people on reaching the age of maturity. And by the way, he was a feminist enough to say that would be boys and girls, that is men and women, would get the money from this fund to get a start in life. So they wouldn't end up in poverty. They could buy land, they could get an education, they could set up in business or a trade, whatever. That's one part of the funds to be, to be dedicated, one part of the funds. The other one was, and this is where we see the big, literally the first argument for social security. When older folks reach the age of seniority, they should be able to retire from labor and should receive an annual or monthly, I can't remember, payment to secure their retirement. Payne is not only the father, the real father of the American nation and revolution, he's also the father of social democracy. Now, I, I, by the way, no one can see it, but I'm seeing Ryan smile, okay? <laughs> yeah, that, well, I, uh, I don't know who else you would give. I mean, what is that like? 1802 or something. Um, I can't think of anyone before that. I think there are some people around the same time who are making similar sorts of collectivist arguments. But yeah, you could. It was in the air for sure. And and, and, and Thomas Piketty in Capital and Ideology, his recent tome, right, uh, explicitly references pain and makes a similar proposal to to address. The, the, you know, what ails us with capitalism today, right? Um, Andrew Yang tried to lay claim to pain. <laughs> I, I got interviewed by The Hill and some other places, you know, rising at The Hill. Um, and I said, well, there's a difference. Okay, there's a big difference. He wasn't talking about a UBI. He was talking about payments to young people. You know who came the closest to all of this? Well, it must have gotten really, really dynamic because paper started falling off my bookshelves <laughs> <laughs> that's the ghost of thomas Paine in excitement the, the, the folks who really appreciated this and i can't prove that lincoln read agrarian justice but when lincoln signed the land grant act to provide educational opportunities to young people without having to go to private colleges 
that's there. When when Franklin Roosevelt proposed Social Security, that's the realization of Thomas Paine's vision of of uh, in, in agrarian justice. And I will tell you, if you go to the Social Security website, unless the Trumpsters eliminated it, for many years, the story of Social Security begins with Thomas Paine. Yeah, and you can see also, you know, I mean, he's writing early 19th century, late 18th century, you know, what is wealth? Why did the French physiocrats start with land? Well, land was wealth back in them days. Like the Industrial Revolution was like barely getting started in the UK. You know, the idea that wealth would be shares of corporations or whatever, you know, like it's perfectly natural in that time to think, well, the land is basically the source of all wealth, you know, in one way or another, we're all living off the peasants. That's what provides all the surplus and all the food. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it, 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 you, you, you see where it's like, he's moving beyond Jefferson, right? Jefferson's like, okay, land is wealth. And so we need every citizen of the Republic to have a little chunk of land so that they can, you know, be like, economically independent in addition to having their political liberties. But, you know, you could just take that one step further as technology and history progresses and to think like, well, okay, land really is not that big. I mean, it's still important today, but it's, it's not like farms are the main source of wealth anymore, but it's the same principle. You, you take, you know, it's like we, we, we create this economy collectively uh, and there's no reason why all of us shouldn't share in it. Um, you know, and y- you could set up the categories however you want, you know, have your little baby, I mean, baby bonds. That's what, uh, P- like Cory Booker is talking about that, that, that is explicitly what, what Thomas Paine proposes, but you know, you could also say a sort of social wealth fund, a uni- not a UBI, but a universal basic dividend, you know, taking the capital income coming off of all of this property and distributing it uh, on an equal basis throughout society. And I feel like once that, once you get that idea into your head, you know, from from wherever it comes from hundreds of years ago or whatever, it's just uh, the logic of it is inescapable. You're like, we're, you know, we're all citizens of the same country. You know, the wealth is produced collectively. Uh, you know, it, 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 Jeff Bezos isn't even CEO of Amazon anymore. Uh, you know, he is just collecting uh, huge amounts of money off the backs of tons of people working shitty jobs. And so we ought to rejigger the institutions such that everybody gets an equal share of, uh, you know, what whatever we're doing, um, you know, to the extent that it's uh, practicable. And certainly it could be a lot more practicable now uh, than the current system where, you know, the top 1% takes up like 20% of the the national income or whatever it is. Well, you won't be surprised to know, as I point out in the book in the many later chapters, conservatives, did the powerful, the propertied, the privileged and the pious did everything they could through the course of 200 years to suppress the memory and legacy of Thomas Paine. Everything. But fortunately, Paine had basically turned Americans into radicals, and in every generation, the radical movement of the day would reach back to the revolution and rediscover Thomas Paine. That was true for free thinkers and abolitionists and suffragists and labor unionists and populists and progressives and socialists and anarchists 
and communists and peace activists and all the way up until Ronald Reagan. And then Ronald Reagan, <laughs> and it, Ronald Reagan was so brilliant. He hijacks Thomas Paine. He cherry picks a line out of Thomas Paine. Um, no, but this is this is this is important though because uh, you know I think it's worth reminding everyone about uh, not just Thomas Paine, but but I think part of what Thomas Paine did for you was to show that what's great about our history is the promise and possibility of radicals like Paine and how they saw the possibility in the collective power that we have to shape ourselves to be more egalitarian, to be more free, to fight for democracy. Uh, and that struggle, that he acknowledged that struggle as one that, that's ongoing, but that to win in that struggle, you have to reach back and draw upon former uh, victories, former struggles, former uh, thinkers in order to connect in that lineage the struggles today to those that have come before so that we have the hope and the, the imagination and the ability to think ourselves as the people worthy of the kind of freedom and equality democracy that we're fighting for, right? Well, yeah. You know, one of the things that Payne realized early on, and it was confirmed or affirmed, I never quite get those two straight, when he came to America, is that, or to use the term of the 18th century, the lower orders, the common folk, the ordinary people, essentially working people, had the, not just the highborn and the property, had the capacity to comprehend the world and to govern it themselves. Right, right. That, that's, you can imagine how much that insight influences his determination to write so that even folks like him will understand what he's saying. Um, and by the way, I'll just tell you, I mean, that line, it's really great. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. That's got to be the scariest line imaginable for a propertied sure. right-winger to read. Okay. Okay. It's got to yeah. be. Um, <laughs> But I, I like what you did there, though, in pointing out the normative basis, too, because why do we deserve democracy, equality, freedom? Because it's true that anyone and everyone is capable of self-governance, and it's true that we collectively can rule ourselves just as well, if not better, than on the basis of some hierarchy, some elite rule. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, as much as I really just – I love the work of Marx – I just wish I could. I just wish I could find some way in which there was some. I'd like to know if Marx ever read Paine. You know, that'd be interesting. Because don't forget the early Marx, the pre eighteen forty four Marx, is basically a journalist who's writing in favor or to argue for the rights of the what the Silesian weavers and peasants. I mean, he's it's that kind of thing, which is why they shut down the newspaper and send him into exile. Right? Yeah. At least that's yeah. my vague recollection. Yeah, and then he ends up writing to Lincoln, and you know, I mean, he's he's quite, yeah, quite quite happy about you know. Yeah, Lincoln, I know read Lincoln, I know, I know. Well, if you if you you know, assuming you read the book, Lincoln, I know was inspired and encouraged by Thomas Paine, um, though he he learned uh, he was savvy enough about politics to know that the powerful, the property, the pious, and the privileged. Would would do everything against Lincoln if he ever revealed the degree to which he was influenced. But people don't realize, you know, that 
conservatives, they lay claim to American history and they utterly misrepresent it. Utterly. They hijack it. You know, sure. when I visited Springfield, Mass- no, Springfield, Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, some years ago, and I did the sort of Lincoln tour of old Springfield, and I got to this one church and the woman who was dressed in 19th century attire, who was going to give the tour, said, well, you know, this is the church that the Lincoln family belonged to. And I said, well, I don't believe Lincoln ever actually belonged. It might, his wife and children did, but Lincoln himself was, was not a Christian. Well, I shocked the shit out of her, you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, Lincoln was a free thinker who suppressed, he believed in God, decidedly believed in God. But he was a free thinker regarding Christianity or any, you know, like Thomas Paine was a, a believed in God, but was a, was a deist. He would certainly use scripture to his advantage, like in the second inaugural and other ways, but he was using religion. You know, yeah. And in yeah. fact, well, Paine, knowing the, the religiosity of Congregationalists in New England and Baptist method, he knew of that. And in Philadelphia, he had all these different churches, which is why he used biblical references in common sense. And by the way, Paine's mother, who was Anglican, forced him to memorize the Bible. <laughs> The whole thing? That's the, that's what, that's the story. He knew enough that he could recount these things, you know, just like that. Well, nobody forced Ryan. He read the Bible, what, was it three times uh, front to back all on his own? I, I did not memorize it, though. I, I, uh, as that, far as you know. I, there, there probably are people doing that. But Well, wait a minute. You know when, all these people who can tell you Matthew's this, and is it Matthew or Matthew? You know, I'm Jewish, so the... <laughs> I don't know much about the New Testament. <laughs> well, people tend to be uh, f- fairly, you know, selective in the parts that they remember these days. I think. Um, but, but my my last question for you, Harvey. Uh, you know, you talk about history, um, and you know, so what do you think? Like modern people should be taking away from from Thomas Paine because. You know, if I'm a cynical, like, kind of like anti-American, like like a like a leftist who's, yeah, yeah. I mean, like the type of people who who are just like, look at all the atrocities this country is committing around the world. You know, like we're we're just doing terrible stuff all the time, and uh, the American project is basically irredeemable. Um, you know, sort of sort of doing in a sense the opposite of what conservatives do with American history, I would say. And, and, and just like looking at only the bad parts. Um, and there are very many bad parts to, to be clear. Uh, but you know, what would you say like someone to someone sort of struggling to, to contextualize their kind of American identity and, and try to figure out their place in the country and how they should sort of think about the, the American project, so to speak, with okay. regards to. That's a great question. Cause I got a lot of good answers. <laughs> 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 okay. The, the first thing, the first thing I want to say, I, okay. I, w- I want to start off with, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I was doing my PhD at Louisiana state university and my field was Latin American studies. And I was in a, in a seminar on uh, development, international development. And I, you know, being a, a person of the left um, who had been strongly influenced at first by the anti-imperialist argument, the, the argument that it was imperialism that explained everything. 
and then turn to the more class struggle analysis kind of stuff. Um, I remember one evening, my very, very best, very best friend who was a, a bit older than I was, he'd come back to do a PhD. I can even, I'll even mention his name. And maybe if he listens to Left Anchor, he'll contact me after all these years. <laughs> so it was Joel Lindsay. And he was an Americanist. In the, and he worked on trying, he worked out on the whole idea of the environment. That's what motivated him and coastal resource management and all that. And I was talking about American imperialism and Latin American peasants. And he said to me, well, then why study Latin American peasants? Why do you want to do that? Don't you think you should be turning your attention full time to the American question and doing everything you can to get Americans to undo the American power structure? And that 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 has stuck with me <laughs> forever. OK, that's my first answer. OK, the second answer is that by saying it's all, you know, to, to write off American the American project as irredeemable, that lets a lot of people off the hook. Yep, that's right. OK, well, you know, hell, I. I can't do anything about it. I mean, my God, I can't do it. What am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, it, it just lets people off the hook. And the other thing is, is that, and this is, this is the thing I really want to emphasize. This to me, maybe if I, if I didn't say it at the beginning, I'm, I'm going to emphasize it right now. One of the reasons that I actually turned to write about my hero pain, one of the reasons I turned later to write about Roosevelt and the New Dealers and the labor leaders and all these American radicals, Frederick Douglass, the whole, the whole roster of them is this. How do we explain the way we feel, whether we believe in redeeming the American project or not? Why, do we, why are we phased by this? Why does exploitation and oppression and – why do all these things phase us? Why do we believe there's something wrong? Why was it in 2015 and 16 when Americans were asked what kind of change America needed, whether they were Republican or Democratic, the majority said radical? I think the only way to understand the way we feel and think about the world is to understand the forces that have literally embedded themselves in our very being. And, and I think that if we go back to Thomas Paine and his arguments about the American promise, we will realize that what phases us is that we are so utterly outraged that the promise that we know is embedded in American experience of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of we the people governing, has been trashed by the powers that be. And I'll go one step further. Paine realized the degree to which that was happening in his own day. And what he, but he realized that this is what Americans are experiencing, and he took it upon himself to articulate their rage, but also their hopes and aspirations into words that appear in common sense that literally turned them from rebels into revolutionaries. So I... You know, I'm not telling you history has that power to, to uh, that Thomas Paine's words had, but I keep th I've always thought that if Americans understood not not just the truth of the past, that sounds so so academic, but if they actually understood that the way they feel is because they carry with them, you know, they carry with them a belief that in fact America has not lived up to its world historic revolutionary exceptional promise and god damn it we really ought to do something about it i think god would be for that actually. yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, well said, sir. Uh, you know, and being Greek Orthodox, I, I, uh, I feel a parallel, you know, and then since pain was a believer of some sort, uh, it makes sense to say that, you know, we're part of a history, you know, and, and being a materialist, uh, Marxist, you, you have to admit that where you live and what time you live, you, you, that contingency, you know, puts you in a certain place from which you can fight and struggle for justice and for freedom and, and equality. And, and I think we have that obligation. And, and as you say, you know, um, it's an, it's, you get off too easy to, to say that it's hopeless. In, in Christianity, uh, one might say the two great sins, uh, are to pride and despair, which is to say you think you're already saved or that you can never be saved. And if you apply that, right, to, 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 to this country and to our, our fight for justice, uh, then I think you find yourselves in the position that, that you and Thomas Paine would want us to be in, which is an obligation to, to believe in what's possible and to fight for it like those who have come before us have. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and very well said, Alexi, but we'll have to call it there. We're, we're a bit running a bit over time. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Harvey. The book is called Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. We'll link it in the show notes um, and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.